Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Yes, it's our regular feature of the Weekly Planet with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig is helping me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Hi, Craig. Hi, Kawa. Hi. The big news this week has obviously been dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you and I have a few former colleagues, actually, that we know based in the Ukraine that are preparing to defend their cities, both of whom worked for environmental NGOs in the past or currently. Uh, what are you hearing from them regarding the environmental impacts that they're concerned about in addition to the humanitarian crisis? Yeah, it's been a dreadful few days, hasn't it, Cara? And no one can watch the news reports from the Ukraine and not just feel a huge outpouring of empathy for the Ukrainian people. And, uh, you know, the Facebook feeds that you and I are watching from our friends and colleagues in Ukraine, you know, you see firsthand, you know, the impact that this appalling war is having on the population there. What is very interesting is understandably what's sort of not making the wider news at the moment, and it's quite understanding that, uh, that that's the case. But, you know, our, our colleagues are pointing out that actually the environment is really suffering to this war as well. And that then in turn is really impacting people and impacting uh, communities in the long term. So one of our uh, former colleagues, Carla, was pointing out about how where power stations have been targeted and other infrastructures being targeted, that is then causing a legacy of extreme toxic pollution that is both hitting uh, local people right now, health impacts on them now. You know, I saw a Facebook post from one of our colleagues that was showing, you know, how they were monitoring uh, air pollution and really severe air, air pollution in around where people live uh, because of that bombing. But also just pointing out, you know, even if, even if, and I wish we could, I wish we could have some kind of diplomatic magic wand and suddenly stop all this overnight. Even if we could do that, the problem is, is then the legacy of that extreme toxic pollution that is uh, uh, being caused because of this uh, bombardment uh, lasts for decades. That's the that's the real concern, and this does happen in war. It happens all the time. You know, the environment obviously is also one of the, the one of the key casualties of war alongside people. But then, when the environment gets uh, destroyed and polluted, uh, obviously that affects communities for much longer as well. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the the general environmental issues like air pollution and, of course, the more specific environmental issues that Chernobyl nuclear power station is there and still very much contaminated. But I think the link between fossil fuels and this conflict is really stark because it's helping to fund the Russian invasion. And there's been yeah. quite a lot of debate on that, on, on whether either Putin or the EU themselves will try and kind of turn off the tap, so to speak, on the gas pipelines between Russia and the EU. So let's have a listen to Ireland's energy minister. Minister Eamon Ryan in Brussels this week talking about that. The best way to take on Vladimir Putin is to stop buying imported oil, gas and coal from the European, from the USSR, from, from, the Soviet, from Russia. Uh, and that's what we want to work collectively and to cancel today into the medium term. That's the best response to the threat that Russia's presented. 
Craig, if you can get past that little wobble there, Minister Ryan went on to point out that while the U.S. is sending 350 million euros of arms to help Ukraine, in Europe we're actually spending 350 million euros every single day buying energy from Russia, which they then invest in dropping arms on Ukraine. So it seems so obvious to me that the thing to do is to go to any lengths right now to get off that dependency on Russian fossil fuel right away. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I have some sympathy for your minister, Koa, actually getting that wobble there and, and, and finding ourselves back thinking as if it's the 1980s and the time of the USSR, because, you know, that's how it's felt at times this last week. Um, and uh, the thing that we've got to do now is recognise that we've got to get our energy in a way that's different from how we did the 1980s. You know, I'm always struck that you, you do have some people say, well, we can't, we shouldn't be buying oil and gas from Russia. Of course we shouldn't. Of course we should try and stop buying oil and gas from Russia immediately. And some people will say then uh, that means we've got to exploit our own uh, oil and gas supplies uh, in the rest of Europe, you know, through fracking or for pumping even more from the North Sea or whatever. But I would say, surely it's really clear we've been doing that for 50, 60 years and uh, exploiting you know, our own oil and gas supplies here in Western Europe. And that hasn't got us off the fossil fuel hook. We're still pumping all that oil and gas from Russia. And the thing about fossil fuels is uh, once you're addicted to them, you just kind of want more and more and more. What we've got to do is, is get off that hook. We've got to move, take this situation now and move faster than ever in investing in energy efficiency and properly insulating our houses across Western Europe, because many of them, particularly in the UK and Ireland, actually, are in an appalling state when it comes to insulation. And that means we're wasting huge amounts of energy. And that means we're buying more, even more oil and gas from Vladimir Putin than uh, we uh, need to, let alone should be buying. So I think it, this really, we need to take this off this moment now to absolutely cut, get ourselves off the fossil fuel hook. And I find it amazing, actually, that this hasn't been uh, even higher in the debate around sanctions. You know, government's talking tough about the sanctions that they are putting in place. But, but I think, you know, until actually the Western world says to Vladimir Putin, we're going to stop buying your, buying your oil and gas, um, I don't think he's going to listen very much. Yeah, I've been following a lot of climate economists like Erno Wagner on Twitter. And, they, you know, they're talking about that kind of more orderly transition that you're referring to, a kind of a fast investment in insulation and renewables. But they're also talking about this idea of ripping the plaster off quickly, which is just ration our own gas supplies intensely now in kind of a COVID level restriction on gas uh, to, to really push this and, and cut off the investment to, to Russia. And I'm, I'm personally very much in favor of that. But I think that the yeah. next biggest story uh, that that hit the news, of, of course, well after the Ukraine conflict is is the one about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out this week, looking specifically at how we adapt to clim the climate change we've already locked in. And the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said that he'd seen many scientific reports in his time, but nothing like this and called it a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Would you say that's an accurate assessment of the latest IPCC report, Craig? Yes, it absolutely is, Kawa. I mean, it's, again, it's extraordinary. This would have been probably the biggest news story this week. Uh, and I don't just mean amongst environmental people, but it would have been the biggest news story this week had it not been for that, uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Um, it is a shocking report, uh, as if, you know, we couldn't have even had uh, enough shocking reports already about climate change. But this one has surprised even people like you and I that have been following this for years. 
I mean, it, it says that more than 40% of the world's population, that's uh, roughly between 3.3 billion and 3.6 billion people, are already living in places and situations that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And that some are already experiencing the effects of climate change. They vary by region and different geographies, but you know, people are already seeing this. It also sort of says, and references for the first time that historical and ongoing patterns of inequity, such as colonialism, uh, have contributed to the vulnerability that many regions face on climate change. And also, very alarmingly, it sort of says that humanity will soon hit hard limits uh, to its ability to adapt if temperatures continue to rise. And the point it makes is that, you know, communities like coastal communities can temporarily buffer themselves from extreme storms, say by restoring coral reefs and mangroves and wetlands. But as rising seas continue to rise, eventually it will overwhelm those efforts, resulting in more coastal erosion and flooding and, and loss of life and freshwater resources and so on. So um, it, there's lots in this that is really concerning. I mean, one other point that I think is interesting about this report is it also talks about the, the multiple health impacts of climate change. Uh, many of them we would understand, you know, uh, heat stress and so on. Uh, but actually, for the first time, this report also talks about the kind of cumulative impacts on uh, mental health for uh, hundreds of millions of people because of the trauma of living through extreme weather events and loss of livelihood, culture and so on, and flooding. And I think, you know, it's significant that it's uh, noted that for the first time. I'm in two minds about how shocking this report is, because I think in general, the IPCC reports are collating research that's already been done. That's the role of the IPCC reports. So if you've been following the research, then you already know a lot of this was projected to happen and and is happening. However, if you're coming to this story kind of late in the game, like some of the women in my gym this week who pulled me aside and said, oh, my God, this new IPCC report is shocking, uh, then maybe maybe it really is shocking, as you say. So, so it's a, a mixed bag there. But I do think the one really interesting thing about this report is it's the first time the IPCC has focused really on on adaptation, which to me was almost a, an acknowledgement of defeat, that we have failed to address this crisis, and therefore we now have to try and adapt as best we can to this, this inevitable climate change that we're seeing. Did you have the same kind of feelings? Yes, I mean, it sort of, it, it simultaneously talks about the need, how we've got to take adaptation much more seriously, because we've been so bad at really trying to do the mitigation job and slow climate change, while also making that point that adaptation can only go so far. So really, it just kind of emphasises how important it is for us to, to guess what, same story again, get off the fossil fuel hook. And it particularly warns about the, the, the concern about how we get into a self-perpetuating cycle around climate change, how you know you get a bit more warming uh, and that say leads to the thawing of the Arctic permafrost uh, and that releases more methane, which then uh, fuels more warming again. So it's interesting to put these two stories together, Cara. You know, you and I have heard time and again that we need to get on a war footing to tackle climate change. Uh, and that's been said time and again, because we just haven't treated it historically with the seriousness it deserves. And so when you put these two things together, you were saying before about cutting off the, the uh, oil and gas supplies and stop buying them from uh, Russia. You know, we are moving into spring now. I think we if we were taking these two issues really seriously, what Western European governments would be doing right now is uh, saying that we're going to stop buying oil and gas from Russia. 
and take the months of the spring and summer to unleash a, a huge, really warlike energy efficiency program and invest in renewables far and in deployment faster than ever. And then at least we'll be in a better situation come next winter. And a lot could be deployed very quickly if we move fast. And we'll be tackling these two huge issues at the same time. It's a real shame that we're not hearing enough of a discussion about that at the yeah, moment yeah. Uh, in sort of among, amongst international politicians and discussions. Yeah, I, I did like in the IPCC report that there was a, an, a, an emphasis on restoring nature. And one of the scientists in the press conference said, for nature to save us, we have to save nature. And that brings me to our last story as everyone started taking off their masks and resume resuming the social undistancing this week, which has been great. Uh, there have been three scientific assessments that have come out, all reported in the journal nature that all link the COVID outbreak back to either animals and or wet markets in China that sell live animals. So does this mean, Craig, that we can finally dispel all the rumors that COVID was intentionally released out of a lab or that we have a definitive answer on where the COVID virus came from? Um, I, uh, you know what scientists are like, Carl? I don't think they will say 100% definitive quite yet, um, but it's clearer than ever, let's put it that way, that the evidence is pointing to, to the, uh, the suggestion that COVID was uh, yet another. So here's the thing, it's not really a surprise, yet another spillover event. Uh, that means a spillover from wildlife populations into human populations. Of course, that wouldn't be surprising because that's exactly what caused HIV AIDS. Uh, SARS, Ebola, Nipovirus. It's exactly what's being predicted for decades now, that if we keep fragmenting and eroding wildlife habitat, if we keep moving into wildlife habitats, and then in particular, if we trade in animal parts and live animals, then we're going to see more of these spillover events causing pandemics in human populations. And so, um, as you say, three studies this week all published suggesting very much that that was the cause of it. And again, linking it back to this uh, seafood market that was in Wuhan and so on. Uh, it, it seems really clear now. I mean, as you say, you, you can never say it's definitive, but I think it's very clear enough now that that's it's highly likely that that was the cause of COVID. And the point is here, if we want to avoid uh, future pandemics or at least reduce the risk of future pandemics that are uh, having the huge negative impact that COVID has have then we've got to actually start protecting wildlife habitats around the world. It would probably make sense also to stop trading in live animal in, in, in animal parts and live animals and in, in markets and so on. Uh, and actually, we've just got to restore that relationship between humans and nature. And guess what? That will be good for human health, too. Yeah. So depending on whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person, you could look at this as a, a good news story and that it's clear that we could stop another pandemic by protecting nature. And I'm not sure how easy it would be for us to to get China to ban these live animal markets. Or if you're more of a pessimist, it could mean we can expect expect more of these to come as we as we continue to you know destroy nature and move into natural environments. So where do you stand on that, Craig? Well, you know, Carl, I like to try and be an optimist, but um, the the real and of course we should take that message. We should take that message from this and and uh, redouble our efforts to protect nature. But I'll give you this thought, uh, this sobering thought. Uh, since January 2020, when of course the virus really started to emerge and spread, actually we've done nothing really to reduce the loss of nature globally. In fact, in many respects, it's kind of sped up which means that as of today, the emergence of the next pandemic is even more likely 
than it was back in January 2020 when COVID emerged. So uh, sadly, we're not moving in the right direction on this issue, same as many others. So I know that's kind of a depressing round of stories this week, Kawa. Um, it's a real shame, but um, you know, actually we've got to acknowledge the significance and underlying root causes a lot of these problems uh, if we're going to tackle them. Yeah, well, I still have one little dose of hope or hopium, as my friend John Gibbons likes to say, because I think people are really talking and listening to these kind of environmental news stories a lot more. So thanks for bringing some yes. of them to our attention this week. Craig. That's absolutely true. Thanks, Carla. Thanks, Speak Craig. next week. After the break, we'll find out if nuclear power is the solution to our sustainable future.